Welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts and philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Um, if you guys like this podcast at all, please go to Apple Podcasts and give me a, a five-star review, leave me a comment, uh, all that good stuff. You can support me on, on Patreon. That would be great, too. Uh, but do that, please. That'd be awesome. Go and do that. Uh, but enough about me, enough pitching myself. I have another very special guest, which uh, I'm who I'm eager to uh, to get into this topic with. I'm going to be talking about Trinity and simplicity and really all things uh, triune doctrine. So I'm really excited about this. Uh, today I have with me Dr. Matthew Barrett, who got his PhD from Southern Seminary in Systematic Theology, and now he teaches at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And... Uh, Let's just pull him in. Enough of me talking. Dr. Barrett, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, uh, Parker. Glad to uh, glad to uh, have the opportunity to talk about the Trinity. Yeah, definitely. So just just before we jump into to your most recent work here, uh, what was the topic of your dissertation there at, at Southern? Goodness, it was so long ago. It's hard to remember. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I I, um, I wrote on the the topic of effectual calling and regeneration. Okay, awesome. Yeah, and I um, made a a case for the uh, reformed understanding uh, that um, regeneration uh, precedes faith. Nice, right. and, uh, and 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 argued from there. Uh, kind of gave a, a a theological argument for for why that is. Okay, oh, that's awesome. Uh, well, that's fantastic. So, how did you end up getting into like theology proper? Would, would that that's not that's uh, salvation, right? That's uh, soteriology. How did you move into theology proper? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, when I've been uh, right, you know, over the years, I've been writing a lot on different aspects of Christian theology, mm-hmm. but uh, I think it, it became, it, it, it didn't really take long to, to recognize that uh, the doctrine of God in particular mm-hmm. is not a doctrine that um, many evangelicals are very familiar with. Right. And um, to, to make matters a little bit worse, it's a doctrine that, uh, well, to be frank, uh, it's a doctrine that uh, many evangelicals today have compromised um, mm-hmm. in all kinds of ways. Uh, so it's not just that we've neglected it, but when we have in the 20th century and the 21st century, when we have been presented with um, a classical uh, orthodox doctrine of God, we've either been suspicious towards it, or we have rejected key components um, that just kind of take out the foundation. Yeah. And uh, that's been a bit alarming over the years to see that happen again and again and again. Yeah. And so finally, 
you know, the doctrine of God can be intimidating, mm-hmm. um, no matter who you are. <laughs> but uh, finally, after studying it for so long, I thought, you know what, I think it's time to, to say something mm-hmm. uh, to uh, try to help uh, the church as well as students and pastors uh, recover uh, recover biblical orthodox uh, a biblical and orthodox doctrine of God. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm so glad you did. Uh, I'm I'm really excited to get into some more of your work. Before we get to uh, simply Trinity, the work we're going to be talking about, I just wanted to, to hawk some of your books here. So, uh, first one was uh, God's Word Alone. Uh, the authority of scripture. And this came in an awesome series. So I haven't even read this, but I bought the whole series because I liked uh, Shriner's, Shriner's, uh, his volume. And I thought the rest of you guys must be awesome too. But then uh, one of my professors put me on to none greater, the undomesticated attributes of God. And uh, this is really great. This is a really, when I need to look up uh, aseity and passability, when I need to look up these kind of attributes, these attributes of God, I, I go there. So I love that one. So I was really excited to see simply Trinity yeah. And uh, it's not in orange juice or anything like that. It's a book. <laughs> I always think I always think simply orange is this orange juice. Um, but it's the unmanipulated father, son and spirit. Yeah. And so before getting into uh, uh, the substance here, why? So we talked a little bit, but why this book uh, and, and why now? And like, who who is the audience? Is the audience uh is, are you trying to convince social Trinitarians or, or preempt social Trinitarians? Maybe both. What's your thought on the audience there? Well, the first thing I need to say is I, I am a big fan of orange juice. <laughs> That's important I, to get on the record. Yeah. And uh, so I don't mind the confusion. Okay. Uh, maybe maybe to those watching, uh, grab um, a tall glass of orange juice uh, and you read through this book. But um yeah, you know, the audience, I would say in the last uh, five years or so, mm-hmm. uh, I have received more theological questions about the doctrine of the Trinity than than any other doctrine. Wow. And that's not just from, you know, students or churchgoers, but from pastors. Uh, I can't tell you how many pastors have contacted me, maybe a bit sheepish, uh, because they often will say, listen, I, I know I should know this, right? right. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm not sure I understand the doctrine of the Trinity like I should. Mm-hmm. And uh, to make matters worse, uh, there's been so much confusion of late that they feel just absolutely overwhelmed. Yeah. So uh, to answer your question, I would say uh, I, the book is really targeted you know, it's somewhere in between those academic books. Um, I, I love to write those as well, but it's some, mm-hmm. somewhere in between, you know, an uber academic book and a super popular, um, super popular level book. It kind of hits that nice medium so that mm-hmm. if you are a churchgoer, but you're theologically minded, if you are a pastor and you realize, I need to know the doctrine of God because it's foundational for everything else I believe. Yeah. Or perhaps you're a beginning student and you want to make sure you you don't actually uh, dive into a doctrine of God that leads you in the wrong direction. I would say this book is for you. Uh, this, yeah. this book is absolutely for you. Now, to, to get at your other question... Um, you know, sort of what's motivating it in the 20th century, 
and this has bled into our century, the 21st century, mm-hmm. uh, there's been what some have called a renaissance of, of Trinitarian thought. But as the years have gone on, have gone by, mm-hmm. uh, many experts have taken a second look and they've said, well, all of this renewed energy and over the doctrine of the Trinity, it's not necessarily um, a renaissance of a biblical orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. Right. Rather, it's, it, it is far more of, of a renaissance of what we would call a social doctrine of the Trinity. And we can get into what that's all about. Yeah. But, but all that to say, uh, and I, I make this clear at the beginning of my book, I talk about Trinity drift mm-hmm. and how uh, how easily we have very subtly at times drifted away from a biblical and orthodox doctrine of the Trinity that our fathers fought so hard to uphold. Yeah. Um, all the way from the first century through the 17th century, we've drifted away from from that uh, understanding of the Trinity. Mm. And instead, we've embraced a, a some sort of a social model, model of the Trinity that looks a lot more like our human society right. than it does how the how the scriptures define the Trinity. And that realization was a bit scary because mm-hmm. uh, especially in our own evangelical, even reform circles, mm-hmm. we often just assume, oh, the Trinity we've been taught that it just must be pure Bible. Right. Um, but as many, I'm not the first to, you know, recognize as many others have pointed this out uh, in recent years on second thought, actually uh, oftentimes the Trinity we're assuming is far more indebted to modern theology over the last century and a half than it is to biblical and historical orthodoxy. Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. And I I had that same kind of thought reading uh maybe it was the intro or the first chapter or something where you're talking about the need for this. And I was thinking to myself, you know, there's I've I've read a lot of stuff on the Trinity. I've thought of, I've heard a lot. Why 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 do we need this? And as you went through the big stack of books that you picked up, I really resonated with that as well. You know, I'm always convincing my wife, let's go to this bookstore and I'll just get one maybe. And I yeah. come home with this huge stack and you got this huge stack and you're going through <laughs> all the different social models and it's it's yeah. some of them really horrifying. Yeah. Uh what what they want to do with the Trinity and sexuality kind of stuff. Um and so it, I, I think you motivated that pretty well saying, yeah, maybe there's been a, a resurgence, but it's not really a resurgence of, of classical Orthodox or Nicene Orthodoxy, yeah. but more creativity and some, some not so good uh, creativity as well. Um, for, for me, uh, so, so coming in to Trinity, I go to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and yeah. the, I didn't really understand the doctrine of simplicity. I, I still... As, as far as you can understand the doctrine of Trinity, uh, the simplicity, um, I, I didn't really understand or know about that doctrine. And when I came here, a lot of the students would say, well, I don't believe in simplicity because mm-hmm. I think it messes with the Trinity. And it wasn't until I had to take a PhD course under uh, Dr. McCall where he said everyone in history has, well, many people in history, theologians have said, because of simplicity, we can have the Trinity without uh without three gods, without tritheism. So I, I wanted to talk a little bit about simplicity, but that, that might be another topic. Should we jump, can we jump into um, social Trinitarianism first and then maybe come back? 
Absolutely. You're, you're the host. So you tell me where you want to go. <laughs> well, there's so much, I want to touch everything and, and I have an outline that's way too ambitious here, but um, so I, I did appreciate actually the way that you talked about Trinity drift instead of um, instead of just sticking with manipulation um, because you, you, you made it, you made a, a really good point that we've drifted here that it, it wasn't necessarily by evil intentions, people trying to misrepresent God, but it's because we haven't been good Trinitarians as my, as Keith Johnson from crew. Uh, he's a great guy. He's always this crew uh, employees. We have to be good Trinitarians. Yeah, Keith Johnson has done, done some uh, really great work on the Trinity. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we got to be good Trinitarians and our forefathers, haven't been uh, or at least maybe our american forefathers whatever it is we've drifted away and then we've drifted to the point where we see simplicity as the enemy to trinity mm. and so because simplicity that doesn't make sense the social trinitarian model is just supernatural to fall into of course yeah you have three centers of consciousness so before i, I get ahead of myself can you can you lay yeah. out what are we talking about what is social trinitarian doctrine yeah well let, let me see if i can uh, briefly provide a little bit of background. Yeah. So over the last several decades, there's been a couple of things that have happened that have been you know, a little bit disturbing. Uh, first of all, there's been key, key components of uh, biblical and Orthodox Trinitarianism that have just been rejected. Yeah. Uh, for example, the doctrine of eternal generation has fallen on really hard times. And uh, in just in recent years, we're, we're realizing that uh, this is the belief that the, the son is from the father. That's mm-hmm. why he's called son. He's begotten from the father, but from all eternity. He's not like a human son. Mm-hmm. He's begotten from the father's essence from all eternity. And uh, the, the church um, in studying the scriptures it has been very clear on this. Uh, to say that um, when we talk about God and when we talk about the Trinity, uh, on the one hand, uh, we refer to the Trinity as one. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, when we are talking about the Trinity, this is the one simple and undivided essence. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one simple and undivided essence, it subsists, mm-hmm. it exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, what distinguishes these three persons? Well, the Father is unbegotten, uh, the Son is begotten from the Father, and the Spirit uh, proceeds or is spirated from the Father and the Son. Mm-hmm. And uh, the this alone, these are called eternal relations of origin, this alone distinguishes the persons, okay? And they emphasized again and again to ensure their, the person's equality that, uh, yes, even though they are distinct in these ways, nonetheless, each uh, person uh, shares that same divine essence. Mm-hmm. Uh, put this in fancier you know, theological language, we might say something like they, each person is a subsistence mm-hmm. uh, of, of the same essence. Now, would, would you say, so um, just to clear, clarify, so there's three subsistences of, of the one substance. Is that the right terminology? Yeah. When, one of the ways that this has been phrased, uh, right, is to say uh, when we are referring 
to the Trinity is to say uh, this one essence has three modes of subsistence, mm-hmm. or three modes of existence. Yeah. Uh, what are those? Well, we can refer to paternity when talking about the Father. We can refer to filiation when talking about the Son, and then spiration when talking about the Spirit. So the connection there, right, between simplicity and the persons, and we can come back to this later, mm-hmm. uh, but that, that connection, we can't, we can't divorce the two. Uh, right. We can't divorce the essence from the persons. Mm-hmm. Now, all that being said, um, you'll notice here that the, the, all of this language, right, um, it is, it's, very, uh, it's very what we would call metaphysical. In nature, in other words, we're talking about the, the being of God. Right. Um, when we get to the 20th century, however, um, not only are some of these key doctrines rejected, but you have a redefinition of the Trinity altogether. Mm-hmm. Now, this happens to different degrees. You know, so I'm painting with a broad brush here. Yeah. But uh, in essence, the uh, 20th century, uh, to one degree or another, redefine the Trinity more in terms, <clears throat> excuse me, more in terms mm-hmm. of a of a society, right? Uh, even a society that might be analogous to a human society. Mm-hmm. And so they started to refer to the Trinity as um, a community of relationships, mm-hmm. uh, one in which each person has their own individual center of consciousness or will and and uh one in which there may be a cooperation with the with one another and doctrines like simplicity well those are either looked at more suspiciously or rejected altogether what came along with this social emphasis was also a move from this social understanding of the trinity to human society mm-hmm. so that uh, essentially the, the Trinity started to be used as really the paradigm and prototype for just about every agenda under the sun from politics to the type of church government you want mm-hmm. to the type of gender role you want to ecology. The list is, is, is just quite endless. Yeah. Um, so, I could go on, but when we're talking about social trinitarianism, uh, to be clear, we're talking about something that's that's new and novel and recent, something that has redefined and and shifted away from kind of historical orthodoxy and redefined the Trinity, um, in such w- with such a strong emphasis on the persons yeah. that uh, now uh, you actually have well. To, to put it bluntly, uh, now you actually have a, a tendency um, to go the direction of so emphasizing these persons as their own centers of consciousness that that it's not a surprise that the char- certain charges get brought against them, like the charge of tritheism, which they then tried to answer. Yeah, yeah, that that's really helpful. Thanks for for that characterization. Um, so uh, another kind of one of the, the tropes that's out there in theology, and, and you know this and you document it in the book, and uh, I think you brought it up with, with uh, Dr. Sanders in your conversation with him is uh, maybe, I, I forgot who you're talking to, but it's east this east versus west, this eastern 
uh, Trinity versus Western and the Eastern kind of focuses on the three persons. They start from there and they get back to the essence, yeah. whereas the Latin uh, and, and again, uh, pulling on, on Dr. McCall, cause he taught us pretty well, but he, we read the Gregory's and he's like, now, does that seem like uh, they're starting? He's, you know, the, the two Gregory's are, are starting with the three and de-emphasizing the one. And it didn't cause they, they talked about simplicity there. Yeah. Um, what do you make of, of that characterization? Are the social Trinitarians just being more Eastern than than we are comfortable with? Yeah, you know, uh, you make an interesting observation because that has been, and I, I mentioned this in the book, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I lay out different marks for social Trinitarianism. Uh, you know, social Trinitarians may or may not teach all of these, but... Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, uh, these tend to be the, the marks that, that characterize them uh, to one degree or another. And one of them is this, his, this reading of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they will go back to history, and there's a tendency to set the East over against the West, to right. say, oh, well, those in the West, like Augustine in particular, Augustine gets blamed a lot. Uh, they love to, to emphasize the oneness of God. Uh, they love to emphasize divine simplicity. Um, but what we really need is the Eastern emphasis, mm-hmm. uh, which focuses instead on the three persons. And, and then they, they usually will interpret the East in such a way to say, well, look, at they, they understood the persons as as similar to a, a type of divine society, mm-hmm. and they have these, you know, interpersonal relationships or of mutuality and love, and so they they look to the east to then say, uh, look at this stress upon uh, the persons as their own agents, right. as, as even their own centers of consciousness. Well, um, there's been both in both in academia and 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 now more so even in a popular level there's been a, a huge pushback against that type of interpretation that type of reading of history yeah uh i use in the book i use uh athanasius as an example as well as the cappadocian fathers to say actually when we go back to the 4th century we see that they were very much concerned, those in the East were very much concerned with the unity uh, of the Trinity, yeah. uh, with divine simplicity itself. And by, you know, maybe we should define some divine simplicity here uh, for, for those uh, watching and listening. By simplicity, we, we mean that all that is in God simply is God. Uh, yeah. It's not as if he's made up of parts. He's a God without parts. He's not composed or, or compounded by, by certain things that add up to make him who he is. Yeah. Uh, his attributes and his essence, we, we may distinguish you know, between attributes, but, but in truth, uh, his essence is his attributes. Well, this doctrine of simplicity was so key to the Eastern Fathers because they understood that, yes, even though we are distinguishing Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, nonetheless, when whenever we refer to one particular person, we can't help but immediately uh, be be drawn to the unity of of all three. And so they would say things like, "Yes, uh, eternal, 
this eternal begetting. That is what distinguishes the son as a son. Mm. But don't forget, this is the son who is begotten from the father's essence. Mm. Uh, So notice there that emphasis on the simplicity. And that safeguarded the equality of the three persons. Uh, one of the the we can get to this later, but one of the the recent uh, dangers that's kind of popped up is that uh, in the 20th century, social certain versions of social trinitarianism uh, really wanted to emphasize equality, and so they they then drew the line to certain uh, agendas in society, whether it was a type of uh, economic policy, a type of human government. Uh, or or even uh, gender, whatever it was, this emphasis on equality. But more recently, even among evangelicals, uh, there's been a certain version of social trinitarianism that has gone in the direction to say, no, we want hierarchy. <laughs> yeah. we, we want hierarchy within the, yeah. in the life of God, and then that becomes the prototype right. then for society. Well, Notice that it as soon as as soon as you move away from from the fathers and their emphasis on divine simplicity, you open yourself up then to to this type of of tendency in either direction. Yeah. And uh, most recently, that the move towards hierarchy, I think, shows what can happen if when you so stress uh, in, in the individual individual persons that you could even. Uh, set them apart from each other in terms of uh, authority and subordination. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was funny. You mentioned that in the book that they're coming to complete, literally complete uh, opposite uh, conclusions. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, and maybe, maybe one's doing it better. You could always argue that, yeah, this guy's got it right or this guy's got it wrong, but it does illustrate the point that if you do let go of certain things, then it, it's a little bit more of a free for all. Yeah, and it's a bit ironic. You're exactly right. Um, it's a bit ironic because uh, while they they may be uh, ha- drawing different conclusions, nonetheless, uh, the method they're using and sometimes the assumptions are the same. Yeah, uh, they wouldn't like hearing that. No, <laughs> but, uh, I I think that uh, more and more it's becoming uh, clear that's the case. Yeah. Well, so so one thing that that was interesting to me is. Uh, the, the three centers of consciousness uh, discussion that 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 really distinguishes um, uh, social trinitarianism from other types of trinitarianism that that uh, each person of the Godhead has their own center of consciousness and that's really what makes people worry. Well, okay, it seems like you have three instantiations of like this form of godness or the divine nature, and each one is is uh yeah it's it. It's tritheism. It seems like tritheism. What would you say that there is one uh, center of divine consciousness uh, against that, or do we do we say we we got to go with mystery here and don't don't come down? Yeah. Well, um, I, I would argue that uh, the what you just pointed out this move um, towards which has been really popular in the last century. Uh, you yeah. can see it among. Uh, Christian philosophers, even evangelical philosophers. You can see it in Christian theologians, even evangelical theologians. This move, some of them gone so far to say, this is one of the most important aspects of our doctrine of Trinity, that that uh, 
these three persons means that we have three different centers of consciousness, three different wills. Yeah, yeah, man. Now, that um, it, it's remarkable that this can be said. Yeah. Uh, among among theologians and philosophers mm-hmm. today, because historically, um, that was easily identified as either tritheism or certainly leading you down the road to tritheism. Yeah. Uh, so it's a bit shocking. And yeah. uh, I think the fact that we're not shocked by it may reveal that we're, we're not actually uh, as in touch with the historic doctrine of the Trinity as, as we might think. Yeah. Now, how then do we define uh, the Trinity instead? Well, a minute ago, we were just talking about how uh, this this doctrine of divine simplicity is so important. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we are referring to the persons, um, I kind of hinted at this. I, I said there's there's only one thing that distinguishes them, and that is these eternal relations of origin. Mm-hmm. Son being begotten from his father and the spirit spirating from the father and the son. If we start to introduce something else in there, uh, something additional that distinguishes them, then that starts to to raise that uh, charge of tritheism. So uh, instead, uh, we should say, no, there's one will. There's one will in God. Uh, Why? Well, because uh, when we talk about will, um, we're talking about essence in in the same breath. Well, at least Mm. Should be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not as if we have, um, you know, three wills and three essences or substances uh, that too would lead to tritheism. No, mm-hmm. the three persons have one essence and therefore one will in common with one another. Yeah. That certainly, as you mentioned, is a, is a, is a mystery to mm-hmm. us because it's difficult to wrap our minds around, but um that's really appropriate, isn't it? Because uh, yeah. the other tendency is to say, is to say, well, we understand it because it's just like how we work in human society. You know, right. you have your own will. I have my own will. But notice that, well, then we're, we're very much separate and, yeah. and separated from one another. This is one of the reasons why um, when, uh, especially the uh, Cappadocian fathers, uh, mm-hmm. the two Gregories and Basil, for example, uh, whenever they would talk about the Trinity, they love to say, because uh, because Father, Son, and Spirit are one in essence, mm-hmm. therefore, when the, in their external works towards the world, they also operate as yeah. one. Do you get the Latin for it? Or they're, they're Greek. Did they? I know the, uh, it's like uh, at the opera, opera ad intra, uh, but it, I don't know where the Trinity fits in. It's like Trinity. Opera Trinitatis ad intra, is that? Well, they would use that phrase ad intra uh-huh. to refer to the internal operations of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And then they would say, yeah, when when we're referring to um, the economy of salvation, they would yeah. use that phrase ad extra. Right. Um, and what they're doing there is they're trying to show that, well, there's a reason why when we look at salvation history and we see Father, Son, and Spirit working as one, mm-hmm. there's a reason for that. That's because they are one. 
They are yeah. one in essence. Yeah. So again, it brings us, it circles us right back around to divine simplicity. And it reminds us then that, well, when we talk about uh, a category like will, we need to make sure we're talking about the essence of God yeah. rather than uh, dividing you know, this will up into three wills according to three different persons. And then we have this huge burden to somehow then explain how in the world they could they could then be be one, not just in terms of cooperating with each other, but actually one in essence with one another. Yeah. So um, I have a lot of uh, philosophers who listen to the podcast and I love them. And I, I want to go into philosophy myself after I'm done with theology. Uh, and they'll say, well, that's that's just what a person is. A person is a center of consciousness, at least, you know, and, and maybe Descartes didn't get it totally right. But if you don't have your own center of consciousness, in what way, uh, j- just like we would want to say, hey, you're getting close to tritheism, they might say, well, you're getting close to modalism or, or Sabellianism. You know, you're, you're, it seems like there is no distinction. And, and so you'd say, no, we have paternity and filiation and spiration. Um, so... Do we maybe maybe the problem is God, the 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 relation between personhood and humanity in the image bearers and the and the uh, the originate is analogical that like God's personhood is analogous to ours or ours is actually analogous to His in that we can speak literally that both I'm a person and God's a person or there's three persons in God and yet it's he may not be a three centers of consciousness though. He's three persons. I, what do we, what do we do with that, that objection? Yeah. it's a really good question. Um, well, I, the first thing I, I, I'd want to piggyback on that last point you made about analogy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and here, um, Thomas Aquinas is, is so helpful mm-hmm. uh, because he recognizes there's a distinction to be made between the creator and the creature. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has been the huge stumbling block of the modern era. Uh, in the modern era, there's been a collapse between this creator-creature distinction. Right. And uh, so much so that, you know, to, to just use, you know, to speak here in generalizing terms, um, there's even been a tendency to think of God as uh, not necessarily someone other, but as someone who is a person like us, just bigger and mm. better and, and more supernatural. Right. Um, uh, to use some, some labels here, this has been called uh, theistic personalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, others have labeled it um, um, monopolytheism uh, because uh, it is very similar to polytheistic, um, a polytheistic mindset in mm-hmm. which uh, these gods were very similar to those who worshipped them. Just more powerful. We're just worshiping one god. Okay. Uh, this, these sweeping categories here um, tend to pick up a lot of uh, kind of the tendency of modern theology. Yeah. And uh, that has, that has uh, really led then to this suspicion towards um, the classical view of God 
which argues, actually, God is nothing like you. Uh, God is actually not a person like you, just bigger and better, but God is altogether uh, in a different category. Um, And and here we introduce really basic distinctions uh, between God being infinite, we being finite, God being immutable, we being very mutable, and, and so on. Now, all that to say, when we are talking about the Trinity, uh, we have to be really careful yeah. that we don't slip into that type of thinking that would say, well, uh, we're, this is how personhood works with us. So certainly that just must be how persons work in the Trinity. Right. That's an, uh, sometimes it's an innocent assumption. Uh, sometimes it's an aggressive one, but either way, it's a very dangerous assumption. It tends yeah. to domesticate God uh, and assume, well, he is a person just like we are a person. Yeah. And so the first thing we want to say that is absolutely not. Um, are, and, and you introduced this uh, category of analogy. That's so key. Even when we are drawing connections between our world and, and the God who's made our world, we always have to remember we are speaking by way of analogy. Yeah. Um, now, all that being said, okay, you know, mm-hmm. to, to get at the objection that you mentioned, when we are referring um, to these persons, you know, sometimes it's raised, well, if you go the direction of simplicity, uh, doesn't this just turn into modalism or Sibelianism? Right. And the church has uh, very emphatically said, Absolutely not. Now, why is the reason for that? What's the reason for that? Well, uh, like you mentioned, they said, well, these persons aren't to be confused with each other uh, because they are distinguished, but they're not distinguished how you and I are distinguished from each other. Yeah. Uh, they, they actually have the same essence. Uh, so, so we, so scripture is going to distinguish them in a way that, preserves and protects that one simple and undivided essence. So how does it do that? Well, that's where it introduces these categories. Why is the father called father and the son called son? Um, it's not because they're separate persons, like we're separate persons. Right. No, they're called father and son because the son is from his father he's from his father's essence, right? So we don't lose that simplicity there. He's from the very essence of his father. And then likewise, when we talk about the spirit, uh, the spirit is proceeds from the father and son. That's what distinguishes the spirit. That's why we say the spirit is spirated. And, and for that reason, they said these alone distinguish the persons. So notice, notice what's being done here. On the one hand, the church is trying to preserve the simplicity of the Trinity. Right. Uh, they don't want to compromise that by turning each person in their own center of consciousness and will. Uh, at the same time, though, it doesn't slip into Sibelianism or modalism uh, because the, when it refers to the persons, it's saying, no, these persons are distinct, mm-hmm. but they are distinct by the way that the essence subsists in these persons as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah. So that um, all that to, or, or if we wanted to introduce this in, in a little bit more of a theological way, we could say uh, the essence has three modes of subsistence. Yeah. 
Uh, that's not modalism because we're not referring to modes as something that's impersonal, uh, as if, you know, God just kind of transforms himself. One point he's father, then at another point he changes into son. No, these are personal modes of subsistence. In other words, we're talking about actual persons in this case. And here is where we then introduce, um, well, what are these modes of subsistence? And we refer to paternity, affiliation, and inspiration. Yeah. Okay. Well, so so I know my listeners, and they're going to say, I want you to press him on social Trinitarianism. I I really just want to, I, I want to talk about eternal generation and EFS with you. So sorry to all the listeners, like, you know, go, go ask him yourself. Book. Yeah, read the book. Go, go, go do that. I, I really am, am genuinely curious. So we got eternal generation. Uh, uh, the son is begotten eternally. Um, he's he's uh, monogamous. He, he's um, he's eternally generated. And and it's like church history says this that all the the A team, uh, the the Aquinas and Anselm and Augustine. But you called them the. I think you called them the dream team, and you added a few more. Um, you added uh, Turretin and a couple others, and that was maybe about a different topic. But everyone says in in, in the past that Christ is uh, that the Son is eternally generated until like modern times. Uh, is that right, or or were, were some of the ancient heretics also saying he wasn't generated? Yeah, yeah good question. Yeah, this has also been another big shocker of the last century. Yeah, and I I think and to some degree. Uh, though not, um, it's not the case that every social Trinitarian rejects eternal generation. Yeah. Uh, there are a number of them that accept it. Uh, but there has been, uh, in the last several decades, uh, a considerable number of thinkers who have just outright rejected eternal generation yeah. and have advocated uh, that type of move for others. And uh, sometimes this is because, you know, why, why is this happening? Why, why are we seeing this core uh, doctrine of, of our Trinitarian theology just jettisoned? Yeah. Well, there's probably several reasons why. Uh, one of them is that um, major systematic theologians have, have uh, written textbooks in which they have uh, approach the doctor, doctrine of the Trinity in a very uh, narrow biblicist mindset. Okay, um, and so they they'll go to you know the, the word study as you mentioned in, in John's Gospel. You think of John one, where um, in previous translations it said that he is uh, the only begotten Son, or that famous passage right in John three sixteen, mm-hmm. uh, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. And actually, current translations have removed that language yeah. uh, because they weren't convinced by the word study. And then certain systematic theologians then followed in that, that line of thought. Yeah. Uh, well, it's interesting because um, now actually uh, fresh research has been done in biblical studies that said, oh, wait a minute, maybe maybe actually the, the historical reading of John's gospel had it right. 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 <laughs> uh, maybe they, they actually had a point when looking at the context and understanding uh, though John's referring to here, the son as the begotten son. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and, and then you've had some say like, oh, okay, well, we'll change our mind. Well, notice there, there's a bit of confusion here, right? Because number one, 
this type of back and forth, uh, it shows that we're not thinking about this doctrine very holistically. Uh, right. we're, we're looking for, you know, a, a, a proof text, right. a chapter and verse, as if the doctrine of eternal generation depends on just that. Right. It doesn't. And so I spend quite a bit of time in the book, uh, a number of chapters actually, mm-hmm. showing that actually eternal generation comes to us in a very different way. Um, it's revealed, first of all, in the very names that Scripture gives to us, Father and Son. Uh, it's revealed to us in the revelation of the gospel. Yeah. So why is it uh, that the mission of the Son, the fact that the Father sends his Son to to be incarnate and and for the sake of our salvation— why is that? Well, that reveals something about his eternal origin. It's fitting that the Father send the Son, yeah. because the Son is begotten from the Father, apart from creation and salvation. So the names and the missions and even the gospel itself. But then uh, I, I also spend quite a bit of time then working through uh, key moments, uh, snapshots, if we can call it that, yeah. in Old Testament and New Testament, so across the whole canon, in which we begin to see this doctrine of eternal generation come to life. So uh, we've mentioned John 1, for example, but we could also talk about John 5, uh, in which Jesus makes this emphatic statement that just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Mm-hmm. We could then turn over to the Apostle Paul uh, in in a, Colossians 1, or we could go over to the book of Hebrews and Hebrews chapter 1, which is going to build off of Psalm chapter 2 and also introduce this begetting language. Yeah. Um, even the gospel of Matthew, tends it tends to be assumed in the way it cites the book uh, of Micah. Well, the list, it goes on because what's happening? Well, the biblical authors are sometimes quoting the Old Testament to yeah. say, to rejoice that, oh, this is this is the son who's come to, to be our savior. Who is he? Yeah. This is the son who is from the father from all eternity. Yeah. And that then, that doctrine of eternal generation then becomes essential, really the, the, the foundation on which our salvation is then revealed to us uh, in history. Yeah. So, uh, one of the ways I describe this is if you, you think of a, a mosaic, it's this beautiful, colorful mo- mosaic. It, it, yes, certainly, cer- you know, we can do a word study, but but actually, the whole uh, the whole canon of scripture gives us this doctrine of eternal generation in a way that's very natural and very organic. And that's why you are a systematic theologian, and and you just made a great uh, apologetic for it, which is great. I'm I'm studying uh, ST as well, um, and that's it's not just a proof text. And because if it were exactly like you said, oh, we got that word wrong, and now it falls apart. Well, shouldn't our theology be thicker than that? Shouldn't it be more connected than that? And and that's that's a great point that you made. So, and and I think you did you did bring me back around. Um, I, I memorized, you know, everyone memorizes John three sixteen in, in uh, King James, at least in the nineties we did, um, even though we yeah. had different translations, <laughs> but so only begotten was in my head. But when it came to theology, I knew I didn't want to be like Wayne Grudem. 
I, I knew that. I knew I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to hold to eternal functional sub- subordination that there's some kind of hi- hierarchy in the ontological trinity is the language I always use, but the imminent trinity, God in and of himself, that, that Christ isn't like subordinated to him. And I thought if there's eternal generation, then it would entail EFS. And since I don't want EFS, because everyone has warned me how bad that is, then I'll take like a, a bastardized version of Calvin's autotheos and that leads me to let go of eternal generation. And actually, I think I, I found an article on uh, Credo magazine saying that that's not really what Calvin's autotheos meant anyways. But can you can you untie this web for us? Like, well, how does eternal generation not lead to EFS? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, this is this has been some of the this has been what's been, you know, so uh, disturbing, I think, about the way contemporary theology has been done. Yeah. Um, EFS is an example of this. And by EFS, we're referring to, to uh, a view that some evangelicals hold, uh, referring to the eternal functional subordination of the Son. Sometimes it's called ERAS, hmm. Eternal Relations of Authority and Submission. Okay. Uh, sometimes it's called ESS, uh, referring to eternal subordination to Son. But whatever, whatever the label, there's many labels. Yeah. Uh, whatever the label, um, there's been a bit of an evolution here. Uh, for for many decades, in fact, uh, EFSers rejected eternal generation, or at the very least, were were quite suspicious of it. Mm-hmm. Um, either for the reasons we just mentioned, um, in the way that they would approach the text, uh, or, or sometimes even just logically uh, not, not feeling like it makes, it makes logical sense. But whatever the reason, it was rejected or looked at with suspicion. And instead, they said, uh, well, instead of something like eternal generation defining the sun, what, def- what makes the sun a sun, they said, uh, is the fact that he is uh, functionally subordinate and submissive to his father. Now, yeah. To be really clear here, they're not merely talking about the incarnation. Right. They are taught in their own language. They're talking about eternity. Um, these, this uh, hierarchy, this functional hierarchy, is person defining for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, it is referring to the imminent life of God. So, you know, in in theology, we we can distinguish between God in and of Himself. Mm-hmm. Here we would refer to uh, the imminent Trinity and and then God toward the world, which would for, refer to his economic, um, his economic um, relation toward the world. Uh, so to be clear, they're, they're not just referring to something that's happening in the economy, like the right. incarnation. Uh, they are referring actually to what defines the persons as persons. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, when they have received quite a bit of pushback uh, and there's been quite a bit of controversy that's erupted. Yeah. Uh, a number of individuals such as um, Liam Gallagher, Carl Truman, and a host of others have called them on this, on mm-hmm. the doctrine of eternal generation. Um, now they have since then said, okay, we, we will, we, we are going to accept eternal generation. Yeah. We're going to affirm it. But what's been, uh, and again, this is so typical for modern a modern type of theology. What they've then done is, is said, well, 
yes, we're going to affirm eternal generation, but we're actually going to use it in such a way to double down (laughs) on subordination of the sun. How have they done that? Well, they've argued that this subordination or submission of the sun is found within eternal generation or it flows from eternal generation. Yeah. Um, And they've gone so far to speak of the father as having um, a greater authority, a greater glory, in fact. Yeah. Uh, At times, though, they've backed away from some of this language at some points, but at times they've gone so far to say that uh, the father can act unilaterally. Uh, He even has the capability of acting apart from the son. Well, what do we make of all this? Uh, First of all, I think, I think uh, it's important to recognize from the beginning, the language that's being used, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's referring to the persons in terms of roles and relationships in a society. That sounds really familiar to the social Trinitarianism that, had its hot day in the sun during the 20th century. And I think there's, there's good, there's reason for that. They, they are very much indebted uh, to a type of social Trinitarianism, whether they realize it or not. Mm-hmm. The second thing I would say is that uh, when you start to say, uh, well, something like uh, eternal generation, this can't be the only thing that distinguishes the sun as sun. There has to then be the second additional category of mm-hmm. subordination, even if it's functional subordination. All of a sudden, right, all of a sudden you are introducing a second category that not only completely redefines, say, the Nicene Creed and what they meant by eternal generation, but it also immediately raises that charge. Well, how in the world then can we still affirm divine simplicity? Yeah. Um, I guess that leads to the big, the big question, right? Which is if we, if we hold to a type of hierarchy, a functional hierarchy within the imminent life of God, how do we either not end up in tritheism or on the other hand, how do we not end up in some type of um, semi-Arianism, which yeah. you know, individuals like Michael Burden brought this up. How does this not result in semi-Arianism? Why have they made those type of accusations? Well, uh, I think there's good reasons. Um, For example, as soon as you introduce, uh, even if it's a functional hierarchy, they say, within the imminent life of God, uh, now you actually have to have uh, a diversity of volitional faculties to make sense of the father being greater in authority or even glory and the son being lesser. That's a good point. So yeah. that then brings on suspicions of tritheism. Yeah. On the other hand, you have the very natural question of, well, how do we not end up with a lesser son? Mm-hmm. Now, EFSers will respond and say, oh, well, uh, the, the submission and subordination, it's just functional. It's not ontological. It doesn't refer to the essence the son's equal in essence, it just refers to his role. The problem with this is that, well, first of all, this is a this is strange language. Um, it, it's very novel language that is very foreign to the way the Trinity's been defined. Yeah. But more importantly, um, it's a bit of a, 
um, artificial distinction to make. Uh, because like we, we've been talking about, right, who are these persons? What does it mean for the son to be begotten? We, we keep repeating, oh, this is the son who's begotten from the father's essence. Yeah. So we can't make this divide between essence on the one hand and um, these roles of submission and subordination on the other hand. No, the persons are subsistences of the essence. So as yeah. you start introducing some type of hierarchy in, in the persons within the imminent life of God, it is almost impossible to see how that doesn't then litter, litter the essence with hierarchy as well. Yeah. It's, a very dangerous, it's a very dangerous move to make. And in the end, I think it's one that actually compromises uh, the Trinity's simplicity altogether. Totally. Yeah, I can totally see that. So the something that I'm still kind of wrestling through is it seems it seems like it seems almost impious even though maybe my my sense of piety is all jacked up it probably is. Uh I came from being an evangelical fish and I'm trying to, you know, develop my own spine here. Um but the fact that the father is un unoriginate uh or sorry that he is he's un um Ungenerate. Um, he he has not. He has his his essence. Uh, not essentially, because all all three of the persons have it essentially. But that the the sons is derivative of the fathers. It it does seem like well, let's worship the original one, you know. And it's like well, it's eternally generated. He's eternally yeah. generated. Whatever that means, we have to still go with some mystery. And I think because of incomprehensibility, yeah, we can do that. Absolutely, and we have to. But it's still like trying to wrap my mind around, okay, we're not going to be able to do that because it's Trinity. But the father did not derive his nature from anyone else. And yet the son has, and the spirit twofold has, if we're in the Western church, you know, from the father and the son. So it 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 does seem, that's that's at least why I used to think EFS followed from eternal generation. Yeah. Do you, do you, have you ever thought that yourself? Does that make sense? Or yeah, I that's a really good question. Um, when we and this is where we have to come back right to our earlier discussion yeah. of uh, analogical language. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about how a human son is generated from a human father, right? Um, in our experience. Yeah, there's there's some type of uh, superiority or inferiority for all kinds of reasons, right? right, right. Um, you, your father's been around longer than you have. Uh, you're younger. He's older. Uh, he might be more wise. Uh, you're not as wise. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. uh, there's all kinds of. You may be more physically mature. You're you're still a child. All <laughs> kinds of reasons why that could be the case. Mm-hmm. We have to be really careful, though, that we don't then assume, oh, since that's since there there may be some type of uh, authority or uh, even functional uh, superiority in a human experience. Oh, that just must be then how uh, generation works with father and the son. Trinity. That's a very dangerous assumption it's interesting isn't it that um and this is why i think we're on on uh, solid ground to say 
uh, EFS is a type of social Trinitarianism because mm-hmm. one of the marks of social Trinitarianism is that it it redefines the Trinity as a type of society and then it makes a beeline to human society. Mm-hmm. It's not accidental yeah. that EFSers uh, also make that move. Mm-hmm. They see these authority submission structures in the imminent life of God and make a beeline then to gender roles, yep. uh, both in society and the church and in the family. Mm-hmm. Now, aside from whatever you know position uh, someone holds of, of uh, you know, uh, you know, egalitarian or complementarian uh, uh, views of gender roles, uh, I think many have recognized. Actually, that's a why are we doing that? <laughs> why are we going to the Trinity? Yeah, uh, to and, and making that the prototype for. Our discussions of gender and society—that—that's an illegitimate move to make. Yeah, uh, but it shows the type of right, that type of flattening that's taking place uh, when they go this uh, a more social route, a type of flattening that's taking place to then just draw that line across. Yeah. Now, all that being said, you know, to get more to to your question, uh, how then should we think about the son's generation in a way that avoids projecting? any type of submission subordination concept right. into the imminent life of God. Well, I think you, you almost answered your own question there when you said, Oh, this is an eternal generation. Yeah. So automatically that should say to us, okay, this is not like our own experience. Right. Um, what does that mean exactly? Well, uh, when we are talking about father and son, uh, yes, we're saying there's truth to this metaphor we're calling begottenness. Yeah. That, that's why we can say the son has his origin from the father, but we're very quick to say, Oh no, 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 no. This isn't yeah. like a, a human father and son and, and how a son has his origin from his father. No, this is, this is the eternal son we're talking about. Mm-hmm. He is from his father's essence, but from all eternity. Yeah. Uh, and so that being said, well, then we can say, well, whenever we talk about eternal generation, the father communicating the one simple and undivided essence to his son from all eternity. Well, whenever we speak of that doctrine, uh, we're not uh, referring to this in carnal or human ways. No, this is an eternal generation that's eternal and timeless. It's an eternal generation that's without division or multiplication of essence. It's an eternal generation that's without uh, mutability or change or passability. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we could go on and on and on. Uh, in my book, I, I talk about the nine marks of an unhealthy yeah. uh, generation to say, hey, these are nine examples of how not to think about eternal yeah. generation. The whole point there is to say, um, yes, we're talking about this this metaphor that Scripture gives us of begetting, but we have to quickly remember Oh, this is not a type of begetting that has um, uh, any type of posteriority or priority or inferiority. No, this is the eternal, timeless God in which all three persons are co-equal with one another. And I think think because I I wasn't as familiar with simplicity and all my... Many of my philosopher friends are telling me I need to just drop it. It, it. it was it was really hard for me. But when, especially when you talk about the father communicating the essence uh, to the son, and yet it's a simple essence, and so it's not a 
it's not a derivative essence, even though the sun has received the, it has been communicated to the sun. It's the same thing that's been communicated. It's the same divine nature. So there is no hierarchy because one has had it before logically prior. It's the right. same essence, but this is how we're distinguishing. And, uh, it brings me to maybe just one last thing here about the the filioque uh, or quay. Um, so in the in maybe this is something that is true between east and west is that the western fathers were like from the father and the son the spirit is spirated um, and the eastern folks said no no way. Do they do they get the trinity wrong? Like they don't have from the father and the son the spir- the spirit is not spirated from both. Uh, how does that does that mess and and does that bring in hierarchy into the Trinity? Yeah, that's you know the the filioque uh, controversy, if we can call it that, mm-hmm. is uh, a really important discussion, a, a, quite a complicated one, of course. Um, here we're referring to uh, a little bit of a a division, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a, a lot of a division um, that takes place uh, not not so much in the patristic era. But in the medieval era between East and West, in which uh, they disagreed with one another over whether the spirit should be said to proceed from the father alone or whether the the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. That's where that word filioque comes from. And uh, this became a bit of a dividing line uh, Mm -hmm. between the East and the West. Now, all that maybe we should preface this by yeah. saying, um, this, even though there was this disagreement over the filio- filioque, nonetheless, uh, the concepts that we've been talking about, these are we say they are Nicene. By that we were referring to uh, the Nicene Creed, of course. Yeah. But the pro-Nicene tradition, both East and West. All of the concepts that we've been talking about, well, so many of those were assumed. Um, And so I I would just want to say at the start that um, whenever we come to this issue, we have to recognize that whichever side we're referring to, nonetheless, the other side also assumed these pro-Nicene concepts and a pro-Nicene vocabulary. Now, yes, when we come to this issue of the spirit, there is this debate and there's a lot of reasons for this um, that, you know, we probably can't get into in our short time. I I, just to point our, our, our viewers and listeners to maybe a resource. um, I would take the Western approach. Yeah. Heck yeah, man. uh, Yes. To the filioque. Yes. Mm -hmm. The, the spirit does proceed from the father and the son Anselm, uh, uh, one of the great medieval thinkers, uh, actually wrote an entire, it's just a little book, but it is a, a book on this very issue. Mm-hmm. And if you go to, um, you can you can buy it, it's, it's published by Oxford, uh, it's just called his major, his, his, his writings, really. Uh, you'll notice that it's in there, yeah. and you may enjoy reading it. He makes the argument that uh, when we talk about the spirit proceeding, uh, from the Father and the Son, uh, we don't have to get worried that oh, the Spirit's proceeding from two separate sources. Yes. 
which is one of the concerns that the East had. Mm-hmm. Rather, Anselm argues, no, remember divine simplicity. Yeah. Uh, the spirit is actually proceeding from one from one source. So yeah. he's warning us not to divide, so so emphasize or divide father and son from one another, that it's as if uh, the spirit at one point proceeds from the father and then another point from the son. Yeah. Anselm wants us uh, to understand this procession as something that originates uh, from one source altogether. That's so good. I'm so, you, you brought it back to simplicity, man. So that's why folks, like we need, <laughs> man, it's tough. I'm still wrestling through, but it's, it's still really good. Uh, Dr. Barrett, I got to let you go. I can't take all of your time here, but I wish I could. Um, for, for everyone back home, that is, is simply Trinity, the unmanipulated father, son, and spirit. And uh, like Dr. Barrett said, it is right in that sweet spot between the popular level. He's talking about uh, tamales and, uh, and maybe <laughs> super hungry when I got to that point and Christmas trees. Uh, you, you have some, some, uh, uh, imaginary uh, monologues from people from the first century. Uh, this woman, it's, it's fantastic. I, I recommend this book uh, for all you social Trinitarians out there. Uh, come at them, I guess, you know, like, like let's go. But um, no, I will have some social Trinitarians on to, to talk about their position as well. But uh, Dr. Barrett, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been fun. I, I'd, I'd love to do it again with you. You got enough books here that we could talk about. Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Parker, for your ministry. And yeah, absolutely. I, I hope people enjoy the book. Um, I think that, you know, we've been talking about a lot of, you know, technical terms and yep. concepts, but as soon as they open the first chapter, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, they're, they're introduced to everything from back to the back to the future and the That's DeLorean right. uh, to the dream team and, mm-hmm. you know, Michael Jordan and Larry Bird to, to so much more. So uh, I hope that they will enjoy the ride. Yeah. Yeah, I think they will. I, I definitely did. Uh, so this has been uh, Parker's Pensies. Lord willing, we can talk about this some more. But for now, that's going to have to do it. As always, all glory to God. 